Well, good morning, Grace Community Fellowship. It's good to, to be back with you. It's good to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, we've all uh, slept a few times since the last time we've, we've been in the book. I think uh, the last message in Ecclesiastes was back in March, early March. We're going to spend this morning diving back in, and you can open your Bibles up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 if you're not already there. The title of the message this morning is Good Grief, not, not like Charlie Brown style, but actually grief that is good. To get to the passage this morning, we want to take a little bit of time to just review and try to just ramp ourselves back up in terms of where we've been so far in the book and the flow of thought as we get into chapter 7 this morning. And just as a reminder, you know, King Solomon, the second king, uh, I'm sorry, the third king of the United Israel, nation of Israel, writes this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, as an older man. And so he's looking back over his life. He's looking back at his experiences, and then he's making value propositions and statements. And it's as a result of his observations and his own investigations. And this is kind of like, as we, we mentioned probably early on in the book, uh, in the book study, this is kind of like sitting around the fireplace or the living room with, with grandpa and listening to grandpa's view of what's important to life, what, what types of things he wished he would have done different. And that's kind of what we get in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, th- throughout all the book, he uses these phrases. You can see them over and over again. I saw, I observed, under the sun. And these phrases just litter the book all the way through. And they, they give us his human viewpoint, his, his horizontal view of what's going on uh, in terms of life on this earth. And just one of the things that uh, you'll notice about his, his, his viewpoint and his investigation, they're very thorough. You know, we've talked about this before, but he uses words that not only indicate that he'd lift up every rock, but it's like he, he lifted up every rock and then he walked around it and looked at it from different angles. His, his investigations were thorough. He really, really was trying to get to the, the, the ultimate understanding of the purpose and meaning of life, and he was doing this as he looked across the plain on a horizontal level. Now, occasionally, uh, we've seen in the books so far, even as we've gotten into chapter two, Solomon spills into his his thinking and his observations some divine perspective, and and the reason for that is he he gets to a point of of disillusionment where you're you're just ready to give up on the whole human experience, your whole your whole human experiment, and say, you know what, it's for the birds, it's not worth it. And then he introduces divine viewpoint, and he gives us the reason or the ways how we should view what we would call the perplexing scenes of life. He's not making an argument or being phony and saying, oh yeah, you're, you're just a baby, life isn't tough. No, he's, he's readily admitting that life is tough. He's readily admitting that things are difficult. He's readily admitting that things don't make sense all the time. But then he introduces divine viewpoint, but this is God's perspective on it. This is how God uses those things to, to make all things beautiful in his time and in his timing. But often even, as we've seen in the book, when you have divine perspective, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't, doesn't mean that you'll just have an incredible uh, ability to make sense of everything. Sometimes that tension still remains where you, you believe what God is saying or you, you believe God's perspective on the situation, but it still hurts. It's still, you're still not putting it together. You, you still have questions, let's say it that way. You know, one of the things about Greek philosophy is it, 
it raises a lot of questions, but it doesn't provide any answers. And, you know, without divine perspective in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's just a Greek philosophy book in terms of the, the outcome. And this is why the, the, the word vanity, uh, we've looked at that a lot. The, it's the Hebrew word hebel. It just means um, like a mist or a fog. And the, the idea is that sometimes you just can't get your arms around the individual scenes of life. They, they don't make sense. You go out to grab them, to grab hold of them, and your, and your hand goes through it just like fog. And this is one of the reasons why. So without divine perspective, it, it, life is just going to produce more questions than answers. You know, one of the things that we see is in this book, and we mentioned this in the introduction, is that Solomon desires his readers, his initial readers, which was the nation of Israel, his family. But now as it's been passed down to us as well, uh, we're included in that. And he wants us to learn from other people's mistakes, right? OPM, other people's mistakes. And what he's going to tell us is, guys, I've pursued X. I've pursued Y. I've pursued Z. Uh, I've looked for purpose and meaning those things, and they're not there, right? The, the dead-end streets of the first couple of chapters. Guys, don't, don't even go down that road. You're not going to find what you're looking for. Oh, don't turn and go down that other road because you won't find what you're looking for there either. And so he wants his readers to learn from the mistakes that he's made. And naturally, um, mankind, uh, you and I, we have this desire this, uh, to know all things, to to know how things fit together. We want to know the end from the beginning. We want to understand every individual scene of our life and how it fits into the whole. And, and yet we can't know those things ultimately until we come to know the one who, who created us in his image, the one who put all things into motion. And this is where Solomon uh, is going to come to this point where without divine perspective in our lives, life is going to be frustrating. Life is not going to make sense. Life is not going to have a, a lasting meaning or purpose. And for many people, that's where fatalism sets in. They say, well, you know what? It's not even worth it. But with divine perspective, divine purpose and meaning, it is worth it. And that's what he's trying to encourage. And, you know, Solomon also realized something else. Not only does man have this natural desire to see how all these things fit together, but <clears throat> life in and of itself even with God's good world and, and all of the good found in this life under the sun, even with God-given gifts, even with all of those things, those things in and of themselves are unable to deliver meaning and joy if it's appropriated in what we call piecemeal fashion, like a buffet. Yeah, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that. No, I'm gonna hold off on that. Oftentimes we approach life that way thinking that if we just get these things independently from God, then we'll be happy, then we'll have meaning, then we'll have joy. And Ecclesiastes is here to tell us that is impossible. You cannot enjoy life, have meaning, have purpose, even if you enjoy all of the good gifts that God wants to give to each one of us, if you're enjoying them independently from a relationship and fellowship with God. And, and Ecclesiastes is very clear on that point. And we've even seen that all the way through the six chapters we've looked at so far. So just as a review from chapter one, we're introduced to the book. And then in the later part of chapter one into most of chapter two, we looked at what we called seven dead end streets, which describe just different pursuits that people take uh, in order to get meaning and purpose in life. Now, some of these pursuits we could look at individually and say, hey, they're good pursuits. 
But apart from the Lord, they were worthless. They were absolutely worthless, held no value in obtaining true meaning and purpose in one's life. And you know, we said this at the time, but it's good to repeat and remind ourselves. Solomon painted these dead end streets for us. He, he put them out there to disillusion us, to, to make us see that there was no hope, no purpose, no meaning in any direction that you want to go in life if it's independent from God. And that was the purpose of that section of the book. And then in chapter 224, we get introduced and in, in almost to the middle part of chapter 3 because of, uh, of this disillusionment. Um, if, if Solomon just ended there, people might just say, you know what? It's fatal. Life's not worth living. I might as well just stay in bed, curled up in a fetal position. I'm never going to leave. I'm just kind of like COVID-19, right? We're never going to leave our house. We're not going to get out. And, and, but he doesn't leave it there because he introduces God's perspective on life. He introduces divine perspective, how you can enjoy things in life, but, but it needs to be tied to fellowship with God and then true enjoyment, true purpose, true meaning. If you think you've enjoyed a good hamburger in your life, you will enjoy it 10 times better if you're in fellowship with the Lord. And I'm using kind of a silly example, but I'm just saying that's kind of the idea is that life is meant to be enjoyed to its fullest extreme but never apart from fellowship with God, always with God as a part of that equation in terms of enjoying life to its fullest. One of the things we learned in chapters two and three is that God is in control of the circumstances and this is so key, the timing of the events in our lives and really the divine perspective, walking in the fear of the Lord, basically condescending and taking every step with an occupation with him tells us this, we can be okay with whatever God allows in our life. Now that's hard to hear, especially when you think of tragedy or trials or pain and all of these things. But, but in, in chapter three, verse 11, it says, God makes all things beautiful in his time. And that is a statement for faith. Many times what we see doesn't seem to match up with that verse, but God wants us to just trust his word that he is in control. He's got this whole thing put together and figured out. And so we get this divine perspective inserted um, right in the middle of disillusionment. Going on in chapters three through four, we're introduced to many questions. You know, if God's in control of the circumstances and meaning of our lives and he works all things together for good or he makes all things beautiful in his time, then what about blank? And we kind of went through this list of apparent anomalies, uh, you know, courts are unjust, people are being oppressed, death comes to all. And, and, and all of these individual scenes of life don't seem to fit the promise that God is in control. They seem to contradict. And so Solomon addresses those things. And remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is not speaking, you know, churchianity and and just this special, uh, you know, language. He's getting raw and he's getting real and he's trying to address the issues that he sees. And then he's trying to marry divine perspective to those things, recognizing that oftentimes there still remains a tension between those two concepts. And so uh, that's what's great about this section. It's very raw and real. Then we get into chapters five through six. And Solomon, you know, he starts off calling himself the preacher. And in five and six, he starts to preach again. He gives what we call a word of advice section. We have a couple of those in the book. And then he, where he's addressing, you know, be careful what you say. 
um, he provides an, an adequate and accurate description. What does true success look like? What does true goodness look like from God's perspective? You know, from a human perspective, we, we have a concept of what success looks like. And typically it's, it's, it's what? It's a house, it's, it's two cars, it's a white picket fence, it's two and a half kids, it's, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this much money in your bank account, it's this much uh, money in your retirement, right? We've got this, this American ideal of success and Solomon just says, you know what? What if God's got a different perspective on that? Who's, whose model of success are you going to buy into? And so he kind of begins to introduce what true success looks like from God's perspective. And um, we come to really chapter 7 now. But before we do, you know, chapter 6, verse 12, poses a question. And I believe chapter 7 builds off of this question. And chapter 6, verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for man in Life And the, the Hebrew word good is, is the word tob, T-O-B. It means good or pertaining to having good value. And so he, he asked this question. And then in chapter seven, it's really interesting because as you follow this word tob, it's used eight times in the first 10 verses. So Solomon is now gonna explain, hey, what is good for man in life? What is good from God's perspective for man in life. And what you're going to find in your translation, starting in chapter seven, verse one, is you're going to find the word better. It's better. It's better. It's better. This is better than this. That's our Hebrew word, tob. It's the, it's the word good. And so Solomon is going to answer this question for us. You know, chapter six taught us that prosperity is not always or necessarily good. You know, many people think, well, if I'm just prosperous, that's a good thing. Maybe not from God's perspective. That might actually harm some people to be prosperous. And we had looked at that in chapter six. Chapter seven is gonna teach us that adversity and affliction, trials, difficulties, hard scenes in our life are not always or necessarily evil or bad. And, and, and we wanna take God's perspective on what he calls good, what he determines is good, what kind of uh, impact he, he wants different events in our lives to have and not have this simplistic human horizontal viewpoint, which, which many of us just naturally take. Oh, prosperity is good. Everything else is bad, right? Oh, life is good. Death is bad. And we, we oftentimes take this very simplistic view. In fact, what appears to be adversity or affliction oftentimes can be good, can be a greater good according to divine perspective. And so as we get into chapter seven, let's read verse one uh, again. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the, one, the day of one's birth. And a, a good name, a, you know, we see this same kind of concept communicated in Proverbs 22, one, uh, Song of Solomon, one through, and, then, and the idea behind a good name is it refers to a good reputation. Uh, having uh, having a, a positive view about, uh, about yourself from other people, this, this good reputation, or it's a good heritage, you might say. And it's, it's left by a man who, who is living or who has lived a praiseworthy life. And so what he's talking about here is a man who, who has um, done well in his life, lived honestly, lived in the fear of the Lord, lived in fellowship with the Lord, 
and to have a good name that when somebody thinks of somebody else, they say, wow, he was a good man. He, he was a, a good husband. He was a good father. He was a good worker. And there's this, this, this praiseworthy remembrance of that person. Now in our day, where you go to any funeral and, and, and they eulogize anybody, uh, oftentimes you don't know if people are just saying something nice because it's a funeral or if they actually believe what they're saying about the person. And, um, but, but what we're talking about is a legitimate person who has, who has developed a good reputation in the community. And what he's saying is, is that's better than something. You want to know what's good for a man in life is a man to die with a good reputation, to be, to be esteemed and valued as a person who, who walked in the fear of the Lord, who, who enjoyed fellowship with the Lord. And one of the things that Solomon's going to do here is he's going to use a play on words because a good name, name is the Hebrew word Shem, and he's going to say it's better than or, or is good, that's, that's our Hebrew word, it's good, than precious ointment, Shemen. And, and so the, the Hebrew reader would have naturally picked up that play on words. And so what is he talking about here? He says that a good name is better than precious ointment. What is precious ointment? Well, there's a couple of potential views here. Let's just kind of work through them and I'll give you my take on which one it is. Sometimes um, precious ointment uh, was used by mothers when, when their babies were born. They would rub them down with olive oil or vegetable oil and it kind of functioned as a lotion. It also, uh, they would use scented perfumes in order to soften the skin. And so if this is what Solomon meant or he was alluding to, he would have basically he was saying he would have, um, it's better to end life with a good reputation than to start life smelling good, okay? In other words, it's not how you start, but how you finish. And that might be the concept that he would be communicating if that's the meaning here. Another possible meaning is it could refer to the use of medicines in their day. You know, oftentimes they would rub oil as a medicinal treatment. And so if that's the case, Solomon could have said, well, it's better to have a good reputation meaning an absence of bad stuff, than to have to fix something after it's broken. In other words, a medical cure. So that might've been something uh, that he was saying here. I kind of go with the third one uh, because of the context that's gonna follow in verses uh, one, two, and three. And that is this, that precious ointment could also refer to the practice in Solomon's time of anointing a dead body with spices and perfume to make the dead body more presentable. And so what he could have been saying, if he's, if he's using it this way, and I think this is probably the best take based on the context, is it's more preferable to have a good reputation than to have a sweet-smelling body on your deathbed or in the grave. And so the idea would be a good name, a good reputation is better than a, a good burial. You know, in this culture, uh, to, to not be buried was a great insult on a person. It was it was one of the, the ways you could really, um, I guess, <laughs> stick a final stick into your enemy is just to leave his body or her body unburied. And so uh, this was a, an honorable way to honor the dead. And, and what Solomon is saying, you know what, it's better, even if you died out in the middle of the wilderness and didn't have a burial, it would be better that you have a good reputation than a good burial. And then he goes on in verse one with this concept of, of, of a focus on, on our day of death. And he makes some really incredible statements here. And in fact, there, if, you, if you haven't seen this section of scripture before, it's really gonna challenge uh, your thinking. 
a little bit. I know, I know even just studying through it this week, it's like, how, how could this be? You know, you just, like, you know, you're thinking through how these can be true statements. But notice the first one. He says, he says um, in verse one, that second phrase, and the day of death uh, is better than the day of one's birth. And you think to yourself, how in the world could that be true? And, you know, from a human perspective, this proverb's just the opposite of what we would expect, right? We would, we would expect that the day of the birth, I mean, the day of birth is a joyous day for parents, for family members. You've got parties oftentimes. You've got presents that come in. You've got celebrations. You know, you've got people with bubblegum cigars, right? You've got people with real cigar. I mean, there's just this, it's party time. You know, I remember when, when Abby was born, our, our oldest, she was born and we were living in the state of Virginia at the time. And we actually uh, called in uh, to her father at work and he was, he was in a conference room full of his employees and they were just cheering and going wild and excited for us. And that is kind of what I think of on the day of a baby's birth. It's just, it's exciting. It's, it's fun. It's party time. You know, you're happy. But funerals don't often work that way, do they? They're li- they got a little bit different tone to them. Uh, and I'm saying that tongue in cheeks, they got a lot different tone. It's not a party. Oftentimes, uh, you know, it's, it involves mourning. There's great loss. There's hurt. Um, at funerals. So how could he say that the day of one's death is actually better than one's birth? Well, from the person's perspective who dies, I think what he's saying is this, you know, the day of your birth just introduces you to the problems of this world. Whereas death allows you to escape all the problems, all the injustices, all of the perplexing scenes of life that you're dealing with. And death actually allows you to escape that. Whereas when you're born, it's almost like, hey, good luck, kid. Good, good luck in this world. You know, good luck on, on what's going to happen. Good luck with the hurt, the trials, the tragedies, the afflictions that you're going to have to deal with. You know, good luck. And that's almost the perspective that he has here. Now, on a personal level, uh, he would say it's better. Because when you, when you die, you leave this world of problems. You leave this world of unexplainable tragedies. But from the perspective of others, it's also better or good when someone dies. And you say, how in the world could that be? That does not make any sense. Well, look at what he says in verse two. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. Again, we we have the word better. It's the word good. It's the word tobe. It's referring back to 612. Who knows what is good for man in life? And he's saying, this is one of the things that's good for man in life. And again, you, you look at that and you, you say, what? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting? It seems the exact opposite. Because when we look at the house of mourning, he's talking about a funeral. He's talking about a memorial service. And he says, it's actually better. It's actually good for other people to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Again, the house of feasting uh, refers to a meal specifically, a banquet. It's talking about a festive dinner. We're talking about birthday parties, weddings. We're talking about the, the quote unquote fun things in life. The, the things that, that maybe you look forward to, you enjoy. You would never miss a party. 
But going to a funeral, you're like, oh, almost, do I have to go? I don't like funerals. I, I remember um, somebody told me one time that they, they don't go to funerals because they don't like them. And I thought to myself, well, join the club. You know, who, who likes funerals? Who, you don't go to funerals because you like them. You go to funerals to support the family and to honor the deceased. You don't go to funerals because you like them. Nobody likes funerals. And, and so that's why this statement is so hard to, to wrap our mind around until he gives us the explanation. You know, uh, I'm not sure anyone would agree with this statement at face value that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. In fact, if you took a survey and say, how many would rather go to a party how many would rather go to a funeral? I, I would venture to say you're gonna have a high percentage, you know, probably over 90% says I'd rather go to a party. You know, that, that funeral, that, funerals are tough. They're difficult. They, you, you see uh, people that you love and care for grieving. It's very difficult. And yet he's gonna say, he says here it's better. And again, it seems like the exact opposite. Now, Solomon is going to tell us why now. Okay, why is this good, Solomon? Why is this better? He's going to give us two reasons. And we're going to see this uh, as represented by the word for. He's going to, you know, for, F-O-R in, in verse two. It's going to further explain why he made the statement that he did. And his first reason is because the house of mourning, he says, is the end of all men. The house of mourning is the end of all men. And so, what, what he's basically saying is the house of mourning or a funeral or memorial service, a funeral home, it is representative for everybody as to where life ends. Men, women, and children. They, they look upon a casket or they look upon a memorial service and, and what it represents for everybody that's in that room is to say, you know what? I'm going to be in that casket one day. I'm, this is going to, this will be my memorial service one day. And it just provides solemnity, just a, a solemn nature that some point in the future, everyone in attendance will someday meet that same fate. Now, why would that be good? And this is what Solomon's saying. This is his reasoning now because, uh, you know, the house of mourning is the end of all men. And, this is a, and that's one of the reasons this is a good thing. Well, because... This is true because this is true for all men, women, and children. It should prompt us to consider, to think through how we're going to pass this life on earth. What should be important to us? How should we value things? How should we invest our resources, whether that's time, energy, or money? How have we been investing our resources? What have we been considering important to us. And it gives us an opportunity to look at these things and reprioritize our life before it's over. To actually get into a, a mindset that we're considering that our life is not going to go on indefinitely. And at some point, we're going to be in that box. And are we going to be happy with what we've done with the life that we were given? And it takes the, this, uh, this solemn view about our life and causes us to think deeply. You know, many people at this point, they wonder uh, when they attend a funeral, they say, they, they begin to wonder what happens to somebody after they die. 
As they look, maybe even it's an open casket, they see the body of their friend or their loved one or somebody that they knew and they say, wow, they're not even there. Their body's there, but they're not there. I wonder where they're at. I wonder how you can know what happens after you die. And see, those are good questions. Those are not questions that you ask yourself at a party. Those are not questions that you ask yourself when you're getting a second piece of cake at a party or getting your drink refilled. Those are not questions you even consider because it's, it's party time. You know, it's like, hey, let, let's tantalize my senses. I'm hungry. Let me go get some more food. I'm thirsty. Let me get something to drink. Oh, there's somebody cool over there. I want to go talk to. Let me go kind of get tantalized by conversation. We don't think about the deeper things about what happens after you die. And you know, the good news uh, for, for the believer in Jesus Christ is from the word of God, based on what the word of God says, we can actually know what happens after we die. We can know before we die what our destiny is gonna be. And the reason we can know that is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you and for me. The very fact that we're sinners, the very fact that we're not good enough to go to heaven, the very fact that because we've broken God's law, we deserve the penalty that God has commanded uh, must be executed for those who break his law. And that penalty is, is death. It's a penalty that we earn. It's the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. But the good news of the gospel is that although we earned and deserved death, God didn't want anybody to go to hell. So he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay that exact penalty. The penalty or the wages of sin was death. Jesus came and died for you. He paid the exact penalty that was required for your sins. Past present and future sins. And when he paid that penalty, he paid it in full. God accepted his full payment on your behalf. And now all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for you. That is God's solution for your death penalty. That is God's solution to allow you into a heaven that you don't deserve. He gives it to you by grace. Jesus Christ paid it all. And so a funeral and memorial service gives people an opportunity to start thinking about these things. Can I know where I will spend eternity? And yes, you can. By the, on the basis of the word of God, you can. Because there was a completed work accomplished for you 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. Um, and then Jesus was not only, uh, not only did he die, but he was buried and he rose again on the third day, all of those designed to give you confidence that God will indeed accept his sacrifice in your place so that you will never have to face the death penalty. And again, how do you get into the good of that? You simply stop trusting in everything else and you put your faith in Jesus Christ in him alone. The Bible says when you do that, you have eternal life. Eternal is a word meaning it lasts forever. The, the very life that you give lasts forever and can never be interrupted the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it makes sense, right? If your penalty was death, he paid that penalty. What penalty would be left for you to pay? That's the good news of the gospel. And so funerals often give people time to think about these issues. You know, most people that, that end up on their deathbed with some kind of cognizance that they're, they're dying they, they typically uh, regret things. They typically, they typically have perspective on how they should have reprioritized 
their life, how, they, how they've lived their life. They begin to evaluate what they've done, what they would do differently. And you know, when somebody else dies, it gives the living an opportunity to evaluate and reprioritize their life, their thinking before they get into the box and it's too late. That's the whole point that Solomon is making. And you know what? It is so easy to get distracted in this life. And so this is why he's he's about to tell us this is better. The reason why is because when you sit and you attend a funeral or memorial service, it is actually a gift to you and I to consider what we're doing, what we're thinking, what our priorities are, where our value is, and it gives us an opportunity to reassess. And that is a good thing. It's actually a gift. One of the other things that he says, the second reason, is he says that the living will take it to heart. The living will take it to heart. In fact, the heart is going to be mentioned three times in the next three verses, verse two through four. Uh, The heart's going to be mentioned three times. And it it says, we'll take it to heart. The word means, we'll take, it means to place an object in possession or control of another. And because it's in the imperfect aspect, it indicates this ongoing or, or unfolding, ongoing results or ongoing action. And so what does that mean for us? Well, the living who attend a funeral, it's saying, are impacted by the finality of life at a heart level, at a deep internal level that impacts them going forward. Now, it may not impact every moment of every day of the rest of their life. They may slip back into things that they had done before or valued before or get distracted again by the same things they've been distracted. But you know what? It can impact change at a heart level. It can change the course of someone's life. It can change the course of their focus in life. You've heard stories about uh, men and, and women who have attended a loved one's funeral and said, came out of there and saying, I realize my life is short. I need to spend more time with my kids. I need to love my wife. I need to support my husband. I need to sacrifice for this person so that they can excel. I need to stop getting worked up over the silly, simple things in life because life is short, life is precious. These are all things that come out of attending a funeral. They don't typically come out of attending a party. In fact, we don't even typically give thought to what we're doing tomorrow when we're at a party. We're just enjoying the, the tantalization of our senses in the moment. You know, man, is there another hot dog on the grill? I'm hungry. Man, is, is there still nacho cheese left in the bowl because I'm hungry, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the farthest down the road that we're thinking at a party. And yet a funeral has this way of just impacting our thinking, realizing our time on earth may be short, our funeral may be next. It just goes to this heart evaluation. I don't wanna waste any time. I don't want to devote time to anything that doesn't have eternal impact or results. And that's just why he says this is better. And again, what human being would say that a funeral is better than a party? And I would venture to say there's not many that would. But you know what? Divine perspective, God can accomplish good at funerals. God can accomplish good with the loss of life of people. Because at funerals and memorial 
services, things can change. Hearts can be impacted. People can start thinking about things that matter. People can reassess, reevaluate, and reprioritize their life according to God's perspective of what's good. And that is a true gift. Now, verse three goes on to say, and it's kind of a tie-in with verse two, but it says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. And again, on what, uh, on what planet would we think that sorrow is better than laughter? I mean, everybody likes to laugh, right? There's good uh, about laughing, laughing. And so what is he saying here? Well, sorrow uh, just means grief. I mean, it's exactly what we think it would mean. It's this feeling of sadness uh, resulting from a distressing situation. Laughter means a state of enjoyment. Um, the Net Bible puts it this way, sorrow is better than laughter because, and notice how it phrases this last phrase, because sober reflection is good for the heart. Sober reflection is good for the heart. Now, both of these responses are associated with the respective houses that we mentioned in verse two. Obviously, sorrow typically goes uh, with the house of mourning and then laughter goes with the house of feasting. But, you know, what's, what's interesting about even these external expressions is they don't always reveal what's going on, what I would say, under the hood. And what do I mean by that? When we look at um, this verse in Proverbs, Proverbs uh, 14, 13, it says uh, that even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. You know, it's just really a fascinating thing because, um, and I don't even think it's the main point of this verse. This is just kind of a sidebar. But it's oftentimes um, sorrow and laughter, although external expressions don't always represent what's going on inside. We've all heard stories about people who were laughing, having a good time at the party, and then, um, and then left and, and did something tragic to themselves or put themselves in great danger or did something very harmful. Or, or even if nothing like that happened, went home from the party and cried themselves to sleep. And you thought, wow, that's weird. That just two hours ago, they were laughing. They were the center of all the jokes. But there's hurt going on inside. There's sorrow going on inside. So these external representations don't always reflect what's going on under the hood. But, but in terms of the context of the passage, he's talking about sorrow at a, at a house of mourning. And that is better than laughter at a house of feasting. And so, again, he reverses our natural way of thinking here regarding which one's better. In fact, if we were to put a picture up of somebody at a party surrounded by friends laughing and a person at a funeral crying or mourning, we would say, which one is better? And, you know, most of us would say, oh, the, the dude at the party. I mean, he's having, at least he's having a good time. This guy has had something tragic. We'd say that, that's awful. That's bad. That's evil. And God's perspective is that actually it's better the exact opposite. And you think, what? that is just incredible. How could he say that? Why is sorrow better than laughter? And he's going to tell us in the next phrase. Again, notice that um, the word for gives us this reason for Solomon's bold statement in verse three. And in this case, he says that a sad countenance makes the heart better. And what he's talking about here is how sorrow is ultimately a better schoolmaster, a better teacher, a better tutor than laughter. Because laughter oftentimes can be a narcotic that just dulls the pain of reality. 
It blocks the process of reflection that could actually lead to healing. Sometimes laughter has the exact opposite effect of giving people an understanding of what's really important and how to value things. Because typically what do people who are caught up in the party scene do? They go from one party to the next party, to the next party, to the next party, and they're searching for meaning in life. And yet, even though they're searching for meaning, they don't take time to stop and reflect on the important things, on the priorities of life. A funeral and memorial service has that impact on people at a heart level. In fact, he says a sad countenance means a sad appearance. Again, this reflects this, the external uh, grief that, that reflects internal uh, sorrow and, and grief. It's just the external measurement here. And he says that the heart is made better. Uh, again, begs the question, how could that be the case? To be, to be being better means to be in a state of having proper characteristics of performing an expected function. And what does that mean? We might say it this way, the heart is put in a better state. A better state for what? To evaluate, to evaluate the true meaning, the true importance of life, priorities, and relationships. You know, also because the verbs in an imperfect aspect, it indicates that it places your heart in an ongoing, uh, with ongoing results, the ability to evaluate these type of important things. It places the heart in a position, uh, again, to evaluate life under the sun uh, in alignment with God's thinking, to actually take divine perspective and consider things that matter, eternal things, rather than just tantalizing my senses. And you know what? This is truly good. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, uh, for who knows what is good for man in life? God knows what is good for man, and Solomon is revealing some of those things here. And you know, this is better than going through life, having everything go your way without any affliction or adversity. And remember, affliction and adversity is not necessarily always evil and bad. That's human perspective. That's perspective of life under the sun. And it's in these very things that we need to grab hold of God's perspective above the sun in order to see life under the sun from his viewpoint and actually enjoy it and see value in things that we typically view as unvaluable or evil or bad or negative and see how God literally can take lemons and turn them into lemonade. How he can, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 said, how he can make all things beautiful in his time. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for the message this morning. It's, it's hard, Lord, if we're being honest with ourselves because it doesn't seem to match our experience. It doesn't seem to match the way we feel at these things. And yet, Lord, we know that your word is true, that your perspective is better than our perspective. And so, Lord, we want to believe what you're saying here. We want to approach life from this perspective so that we can truly enjoy you, enjoy fellowship with you, that we don't allow events in our life to separate us from fellowship, fellowshipping with you, that we actually take advantage of the truth shared here and begin to see where that might apply in our own lives. And we just thank you again for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.